Welcome everybody to the Cannabis Incubator podcast. We have Charlene Estrada joining us today. We're going to talk about any uh, number of topics, but I, I think a big one is going to be integration after mergers and acquisitions. Um, and we were actually just talking about how to set up a podcast and how I'm, I'm kind of uh, building the plane as I fly it here in terms of technology. But without further ado, Charlene, why don't you introduce yourself? We can start with the podcast equipment discussion and then we'll go from there. Excellent. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Charlene Estrada. I'm a management and business consultant, um, and I'm founder of Elevate Beyond Consulting. Um, I actually made a career pivot into cannabis in 2021 after spending about 25 plus years in healthcare health tech. During the pandemic, like most people, I was um, remote working and really had a lot of time to reflect on if I was still passionate and happy about what I was doing. And my mission of wanting to, you know, help make healthcare affordable and accessible to all was still something I was very passionate about. But how I was going about it through traditional healthcare and health tech um, was no longer feeling like it was the right fit for me. Um, and so I made that career pivot and leap into cannabis. And it was scary um, making such a significant pivot and having to rebuild your network and learn all about the industry and do all those things. Um, but really, truly, the key takeaway for me was the skill set and experience that I had in healthcare, health tech was really, truly transitioned, transitioned well into cannabis. And so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. Can you talk more about the skills that were transferable from your prior role into Absolutely. cannabis? Well, yeah, of course. Um, I used to lead um, a large team, almost, um, gosh, 100 people, and it was various teams. I had five different leaders. And so just leadership and team development was one of the big ones. Um, but really, my, my niche expertise um, came from mergers and acquisitions and doing the post-integration. And so I had worked for companies in the past where their growth strategy was not about organic growth. It was about um, acquisition, growth through acquisition. And so I had become a lead in doing that integration work. And in cannabis, you know, back in 2019, 2020, there was, I'll say, a lot of um, optimism. You know, we had uh, interest rates were low. There was hope out, out there of, um, you know, federalization. There was capital was plentiful. And so companies had this mindset of build it and they will grow or scale at any cost. And so you saw an influx of um, acquisitions at that time. And unfortunately, here we are in 2022, 2023, we've become uh, a little disillusioned, I'll say, in the industry because interest rates went up, um, capital funding has dried up, and we now know federal legalization is still a ways off. And so those companies that have been working towards you know, those things are now distressed and some of them looking for an exit. And those with deep pockets are looking to acquire assets, increase market share. And so there's a very different look and feel to the merger and acquisition activity that's happening now, as opposed to several years ago. And when you say integration, what do you mean by integration? So when you think about a merger acquisition, usually there is a parent company either acquiring or merging with another company. And it's bringing those two companies together. Um, so if you think about um, a retail operator, 
acquiring another, you know, dispensary? What does that look like for the people that work at that dispensary that's being acquired? Are, are they going to have to do things differently? Will they have different standard operating procedures? Will they have to know new point of system sales? There's, there's all these things that you need to consider um, from the you know, new owners. Is there going to be a different corporate culture? Is there going to be a different way of doing things? Um, so it's everything from you know, what does this look like? What does this workplace culture look like? Is it the same look and feel as what I'm used to or is it very different? all the way down to, am I going to have to be retrained? Am I going to be new at my job all over again when I was quite proficient and expert? And it's taking all those things into consideration and deciding how you're going to integrate them. Some companies, when they acquire, they don't want integration. They want to keep that you know, dispensary, that retail operation just as it is. They are just looking for additional market share in a new market, but they want to keep things as is. Others want to bring the retailer dispensary into their fold, have it running and looking very similar to others they have in that in that region or in that state. And so it depends the type of integration, the degree of integration on how much um, work there will be in, I'll say, completing that um, integration. This reminds me of like contracts, whether you're writing a contract or a compliance program, you know, I don't really care what you have on paper. It's really the implementation of the terms that you have within a contract or the SOPs you have within a compliance program. Um, what do you see most often? Is it that an acquiring company would want to keep employees, a pre-existing employees on board, or is it more often that um, they bring in the clean house and bring in their own employees? Typically, um, at first, they need them. They need those employees because they have the, um, the knowledge, the expertise on how that retail operation is ran at that time. And if for nothing else, they need to understand basically how it's done. I mean, integrations where they come in right away and clean house oftentimes go very disastrously and can be very painful. Um, so most of them do want to keep them. And the hard part actually is keeping the high performers. Because they know that they've got a skill set and they're good at what they do. And if there's even a hint that there's some uncertainty about whether they're going to have job security or that things are going to be changed so drastically that they may no longer enjoy the workplace environment, they're the first to go. And it's hard when you don't have your top performers to keep building and growing and sustaining operations the way you need it to be to work through the integration. Because with an integration, you're not only having to do all of the roles and responsibilities that you were tasked to do, you were hired to do. There is another layer then of knowledge share, educating the acquiring company of how you do things or um, being part of the integration and understanding how things are going to change. And so a lot of people think it's not, you know, it's not worth it. I'm getting paid to do my job and now I'm being asked to do my job on top of doing some additional integration work. It really is a difficult period for the acquired company to keep those top performers. And so with that, one, you have to identify right away who those folks are and start to work with them and understand, address any fears or concerns, be very transparent about what this integration is going to look like so that they can make um, a determination if this is going to be a good fit for them. Yeah, it's just, it again, it reminds me of doing compliance work because it, 
if you get hired to audit a compliance program and you come in like guns blazing, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. The employees are going to look at you like, who is this guy? And, you know, the more I've learned about compliance, the more you learn, it's less about like knowing the regulations and more about dealing with people. Like what, what's your approach when you first come into a company and kind of introduce what you plan on doing for that company to employees that may or may not be receptive to it? It's all about the people, right? And, and that goes for any business. If you, a business is about the people. And so I've, I've been involved in both where they went in their guns blazing. We're the new parent company. This is how we're going to do things. If you don't like it, there's the door. And I've been in a company that said, you know, we're entering, we acquired you because this is a new um, market space for us. This is a new line of business. Um, and we really want to learn from you and we want to help you grow and we want to help provide you additional opportunity in this larger parent company. And so the approach, how, how leaders approach this is really make or break. One of the things you have to address up front is the level of uncertainty and fear felt by the organization or by the company that's being acquired. And you have to talk about it. And one of the ways that helps kind of temper those fears is having a very clear plan on what that future state or what that end state looks like, knowing that they've got a place there. That will at least help them know they're not going to go through this integration and then get cut at the end. And if that is the case, then they need to be very, um, you know, very transparent up front. And the acquiring company needs to realize that chances are those people are going to look elsewhere and look very quickly. So we were talking about like content the other day, and I was basically making the point to Charlene that she should get on here, whatever medium and, and put more content out because this sort of role to me is, is relatively unique when you hear people talk about what they do in the cannabis industry. So my next question is, can tell us, we talked a little bit more about your prior, or we talked a little bit about your prior role, but tell us more like how you got there. Like what, how do you go about developing the skills to do what you do? Um, so I started out in project management. Um, actually, I started out in finance. <laughs> That's another story for another time. Um, but in finance, I was um, I oversaw at a healthcare company all of the IT finances, and so I worked very closely with the CIO and understood that the way they manage IT work is in projects. And I started to get interested in projects, and eventually brought me into project management. And that's where I spent about twenty years of. My career was in project and program management. And um, through that, I started to get assigned just numerous post-merger and acquisition integration projects, migrations, conversions. Um, and that's where I honed my skill. And that's really where I learned that if you don't get connect with the people, if you don't bring them along on the journey, you're, it's not going to be successful. Integration work is about understanding how clearly, how detailed you want to integrate, being able to communicate that to them and being able to help the people manage through the change curve. When you're first told that your company is being acquired, there is a sense of fear and denial. That's not going to happen. It'll never go through. Something's going to fall through. Once you realize, you know, this is happening there is um, a sense of, there's all goes into like the valley of despair is what it's called. 
um, you know, where they get really disillusioned and they don't know what to do and they don't know what's happening with their role or if they're going to get let go. And if you help them through that change curve through clear communication, timely communication, helping them understand what their role is today and what it will be in the future, they'll eventually come up the other end of the curve. So it's like a big U. Um, they'll come up through the other end of the curve and they'll start to get excited again about the possibilities, about the future, about possible um, career development, expansion into other roles. And that's where you really get the momentum for them to really fully be on board and start to become part of that integrated workplace culture. Would you say that employees that are resistant to the, the buyer coming in is one of the bigger challenges or what would you say is the biggest challenge in integration after a deal is struck? Oh gosh, um, one of the most painful things I experienced was not understanding who the true decision makers were post-integration. And so you have this parent company and the acquired company, and there could have been, for example, a CMO in both. And now who's gonna make the decisions about marketing? Who's gonna make the decisions about branding or sales or any other, you know, any other um, supply chain decisions? When you're integrating, who's the decision maker? And if you don't know, you're gonna get an answer from this person and an answer from this person, and they're gonna be completely different. And there's gonna be chaos on the ground floor. Folks aren't gonna know who to listen to, what I should be doing, what's the right instruction. And so that not having clear decision makers at the top level and a clear understanding of what that future state vision will be makes it very difficult for frontline workers to understand what's going on and to have a level of, I'll say, security that leadership knows what they're doing and it's worth going through this um, change and struggle to get through the other side. Oftentimes that's when you see a lot of folks leave is when we start to get into like the chaos of the integration and they realize not for me or I can do this elsewhere and not have this drama associated with it. So in a perfect world, you would be brought in when the deal is being struck, I would think, right? Because if these, some of these issues aren't addressed in the documents, the deal documents, I imagine that could cause issues in the actual implementation or inter integration of the yeah, deal itself. It Ideally, that is when you would want someone that's going to be working in integration to be involved. Realistically, it typically happens when the ink is drying and like, oh, we got to go now. Okay, bring in the integration um, team. Um, but that there is some, there are some that will bring it in. You know, what do you think? They'll even have you do a little bit of the due diligence in terms of, is this a good fit? Is this company we're interested in acquiring a good fit? Um, and sometimes they're already sold that it is. Even if you say no, they're going to go through with it anyways. Um, so um, ideally, yes. Realistically, more likely not. And when you say realistically, it reminds me again of compliance and even legal work to the degree that, you know, these cannabis companies are not operating with an unlimited budget. You don't work for free. I don't work for free. So there's a degree of... Um, you know, practicality that needs to be, you know, we need to look at this with. And along those same lines, I mean, how do you address the response from like a potential client that we don't have the money to have those services rendered when that's, uh, you, know, you know, I really go point. about it. If they say we don't have the money, I really try to tell them what, what are the risks of going in it without having this kind of, you know, 
um, expertise because integrations, 80% of them fail based on what the leaders expected the end result to be. 80% for lots of reasons, lots of them to do with lack of clarity around what that future end state was to look like. And a lot of them have to do with the people, not managing the human aspect of change. You know, change is a big deal for people, especially when they've been working in a familiar environment. And if you're not managing that change component for them, they're going to leave. And so um, when they say we don't have the funding for this or we want we want to do this in a limited way or a very streamlined way, I really go back to what is your what is your desired future state? And here are the risks all along the way that you're not going to get there because you're trying to cut corners, especially with the people. If they want to just come in and say, we're going to change, we're going to, you guys are going to adopt everything we do, and we're not going to have conversation, just hear our SOPs, here's how we do things, go do it. And there isn't proper training, there isn't a time for them to kind of process what's happening. Um, they will end up with assets um, and maybe a location and no workers. Well, and we've gotten to a point in the market, the cannabis market specifically in California comes to mind where it's this stuff matters. I mean, I, I think there's almost, and this is uh, not good for business maybe, but I think clients become a little too over-reliant on attorneys to a certain extent that this attorney is going to write the contract and that contract is going to protect me until the end of time. When in reality, it's the implementation of those terms that are going to make or break whether or not there's a dispute down the road and that ultimately you have that contract in place so that if there is a dispute, there's guideposts in terms of how that dispute is to be resolved, but a contract is not going to implement itself. So I, you know, obviously I'm having you on, so I, I believe in what you do, but I really can't stress that enough. If we've, especially with the barriers we have within the cannabis industry, we really, I think we need to relook at how we're, allocating resources. And that's kind of what I was getting at when I asked the question about, oh, we don't have the money to it. It's almost like someone saying, I don't have the time to put content on, or I don't have the time to work out. I Show me your, you know, your hour by hour, what you're doing. And I'm guessing we could find time. And similarly, you know, tell me how you're spending your money as a cannabis company. I, I suspect that, uh, that there's money to be better spent on services like integration and, and things along those lines. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the acquisition itself was probably very expensive. The last thing you want to do is have a failed implementation, a failed integration, and then have that asset and, and nothing to show for other than just, like I said, the physical location or the, the physical assets. Do you take a different approach based on the size of the company that's being acquired? I do. I do. So, you know, if it's a smaller company, you you really want to be able to understand end-to-end -end what that integration looks like from every different department. You want to have an all-in view. Larger companies, you really need to spend time specifically in each department and understand what they do. And then you want to bring it all together before you start integrating. It's a different approach. Um, it's the same work. It's just a different approach. And um, I will say um, a lot of times, when you go in after a merger acquisition, you go in to do the integration. One of the first things you're looking at is documentation for the company that's being acquired. How do they currently do things today? Is it similar? Is it very different? 
And oftentimes we find it's lacking. The documentation itself is lacking. There's a lot of, you know, knowledge. Um, just it, people just do it by memory or they just were trained and there was never any documentation. And so a lot of times what people don't expect is that before you even start to integrate, you actually have to understand and document how things were done in either the acquired company or the company uh, acquiring. Because if the acquiring company doesn't have documentation, how are you ever going to train the people that are being acquired? And so a lot of times that catches folks off guard. Like, what do you mean we can't start integrating? Like, well, you have no standard operating procedures documented. You have no way of being able to assess is this similar or not. And you ask three different people how you do X, you're going to get three different answers. And so a lot of times that's really what catches them off guard is we have to do some upfront heavy lift and even just baselining and understanding what is current state before we can even start doing integration into a future state. Do you tend to encounter resistance when you go from a free-for-all to actually having documented SOPs? Because I know I do. <laughs> All the time. It, it That's the first sense I'll say that they feel like it's very intrusive. Like you're coming in and taking over. You're telling us what to do. And this, again, I'm going to go back. I, I cannot emphasize enough the human component of this. These folks are now kind of the world has been turned upside down. Um, they have new people coming in and, and asking for information that may not be readily available. Um, it's stressful to them. And so that's where really empathy and compassion come in. And I know during the pandemic, there was a big spike in, you know, talk about what leaders are lacking is that empathy and compassion. And in integration, you learn that very quickly. You see on these folks' faces, frustration, fear, anger, the whole range of emotions. And it is because of the level of uncertainty just went from zero to 60 overnight for them. And so there is a lot of pushback. But when you start to tap into where that pushback is coming from and start to address the root of it, I'm worried I might not have a job after this. I'm worried I have to do things differently where I'm no longer going to be good at what I do. Uh, I'm worried that I'm not going to like new the new leadership. When we start to understand the root cause of some of that, um, we can address it more quickly. You know, any change, you've got the early adopters, which are like gung-ho, ready to go. And then you have the fence sitters are like, uh, I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit here and just see what happens. If it blows up, not didn't have to do, put any effort into it. If it if it actually moves forward, I'll hop on board. And then at the very end, you've got the saboteurs. Those folks that are going to dig in their heels, they're going to make it miserable because they don't want to change. And oftentimes those folks eventually through attrition, um, they'll leave because it's no longer a place that they want to be, but keeping them around for too long can actually negatively influence some of like the, the fence sitters that are sitting around, like, oh, I'm going to wait and see, get in their ear and be like, you're right, this is dumb. I don't want to be here. So it's quick. It's very beneficial to identify who are those early adopters, get them engaged early and often help them start to motivate and bring over some of those folks that are kind of just sitting on the sidelines and then identifying the saboteurs and help understand what, what is it that's creating that fear for them. A lot of times you can bring them over at least to be curious about what the future is going to look like. For those that you can't, you want to, you want to make sure that you find them a different place 
um, or that they move on because then that can be detrimental to the end state as well. Yeah, it just I, and I I think of this in terms of compliance and, and establishing a new program with new people, and it, it just reminds me of what you're saying in that you have to make it very clear to people that you can't, this isn't going to work unless they buy in. And for me, you know, and I always joke, joke because I feel like a lot of lawyers do not do compliance work because we actually have to be, do, be nice during the process to, to have it work and actually implement a program uh, effectively. But to me, it's like a balance between being empathetic and not being a pushover. To your point, in terms of people looking to sabotage a program, um, I think empathy plays a huge role in all of this. But at the same time, if there's people that are very clearly not buying in and have no intention of buying in, I, I think you have to address that directly, you know, which is, you know, never fun, but it's just a reality, I think. It's a reality. And um, I think one of the most important success factors in um, integration is having a strong leadership team, both at the acquired company and the acquiring company, they both need to be on the same page um, and they both need to understand the importance of going through some of the, I'll say the, the human components, the empathy and the compassion. If they wanna just ram this down someone's throat, this is the change, take it or leave it. It's not gonna work that way. Well, and I can see it now, the Instagram comments, oh, you guys are talking about acquisitions. It's only these huge MSOs and big tobacco doing it. And I can tell you, and I'm curious to see what your experience is with that, that the acquisition work that I do is really small time operators looking to get into the market. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, uh, what the hell is the name of the tobacco company? I can't think of it right now. Um, oh, Philip Morris? Yeah, Philip Morris coming in and like buying up all these dispensaries. It's really, we're talking about um, in many circumstances that I I've handled, it's really mom and pop shops just trying to get in the market. So just to be clear before anybody tries to crucify me in the comments that that's, we're not uh, only talking about the big guys buying it really more often than not, that's, that's not the case. I don't know what your experience has been. It's not. And you know, a lot of, a lot of small companies, they, a lot of startups, they get into it with the hope that they hit a certain valuation and they and they exit that that was that's their plan they like doing startups and they're going to move on to the next startup and so a lot of it is my goal is i'm starting this company i'm going to hit a certain valuation and then, and then i want to get acquired and because they don't enjoy that that mega growth and mega scale. They like the scrappy startup work. They like the little bit of the chaos. And so there are these serial entrepreneurs that move from startup to startup and um, they'll get acquired by another small company. Maybe they want a second dispensary location, a third one, a fourth one in, in their state. And so it's not these big MSOs and, and the big MSOs and pharma and tobacco that they've got, I mean, the scale at which they do this is just, you know, a different level, right? The, well, those maybe, big companies aren't looking to to acquire these onesie twosies. They're looking for really significant, um, you know, um, companies that they're going to put add to their portfolio instead of you know a dispenser here, a dispensary there. You made me think of the uh, the perception versus reality memes that you see across the internet when you when you talk about a, a business setting themselves up to be acquired because I imagine. The perception is 
you know, we need just to get our doors open and we can kind of cut corners to get there. But I would imagine having been on the buy side legally, that the reality is, is like, you really need to invest in your people if you want to be acquired, because having represented buyers, that's something you're looking into. Are your people well-trained and happy, you know, and, and going to be able to can have some level of continuity after the sale? But I would imagine people look at it differently as far as from the C-suite that we just need to get our doors open and, and hope for the best. And, and a lot of them do, right? A lot of them is we just need to get to market. Let's just go to market. Let's get our product out or let's open, you know, our retail space. And then we'll go back and we'll assess, do we need talent development? Do we need to write SOPs? A lot of them kind of stay lingering in that space where we need to do it and we'll, we build it as we go, right? We talked earlier about we build the plane as we go. That's just startup life. It's a reality. You know, when you're starting up, you're wearing so many different hats. You can't do everything. You can't be everywhere at once. Um, but those that their long-term vision is to be acquired, to have an exit strategy, they do all say reserve a little more time and energy in making sure their books are up to date and clean. They've got good accounting practices. They've got documented SOPs because they know at some point there is going to be someone coming in to do their due diligence. And if that isn't all clean, they don't have their house in order. It's not going to be an attractive, um, they're not going to be an attractive sell for the buyer. So it, it, there is a different perspective, I'll say, in terms of the timing and the urgency of doing those things when long-term you're wanting to grow organically and keep your company versus I'm going to meet a certain valuation and then I want an exit strategy. And I think it's really important for people to realize, and I, I talk about this when I talk about compliance, that compliance isn't an academic exercise. Like you obviously, you need to understand the regulations, but at a certain point, it's about the implementation and the testing of what you're implementing and adjusting from there. I mean, we, I said this to you yesterday when you made me, made me think of it when we're talking about content. You know, you can read about doing push-ups, but until you do push-ups, you're not going to get better at doing push-ups. And similarly, you're not really going to see the holes in a compliance program until you actually act on it and implement it and get feedback from the employees that are implementing on it and implementing it and go from there. And I, it sounds a similar sounds to be a similar situation based on what you're saying with post MA integration. It's not just about sitting around and, and thinking about it. Like at a certain point, you got to make moves. Absolutely. And, you know, coming from healthcare, health tech, highly regulated, especially like in the government space where, you know, Medicare, Medi-Cal, it's very regulated. Compliance is a huge issue. You know, one of the things um, an ex-CEO used to say is non-compliance is not an option, you know? Um, and so, it's not just a matter of writing compliant SOPs, like you said, you have to make sure that they maintain, that they stay compliant, that, you know, you write an SOP, you train people, eventually people get lax or they think of a, maybe a streamlined way of doing things. We have to continue to do those internal checks, those internal audits. Are the SOPs still relevant? Are they still compliant with today's rules and regulations? Are we still adhering to them? And make those tweaks along the way, um, because that's another big another big one is if there is compliance issues, if there are 
concerns of compliance issues. That is a big area where during um, due diligence, there can that can make or break a decision whether or not your company is an attractive company for the acquired for the acquiring company. It almost feels like you combine in what you do. It's like a mixture of compliance and business consulting. Is that like a fair way of of describing it? I mean, because I would imagine when you go into a deal, I'm not that you would have to be a compliance expert, but I'm guessing you have like a working knowledge of the things generally that you need to be worried about in terms of operations. Yeah, I mean, it's just so ingrained in me from my past life around compliance that um, those are some of the things I, I do look at um, because the risk the risk can be significant, right? I mean, when I was back in healthcare health tech, uh, I worked for a company and they were out of compliance. They were given opportunity after opportunity to get in compliance and they kept missing those deadlines. They, be, they were sanctioned. And so they couldn't sell business during open enrollment. And so... If, if anyone knows, open enrollment is a small window of time where everyone signs up for healthcare um, when you're on Medicare um, or Medicaid. And so they were sanctioned during open enrollment. That meant, you know, like 60% of the new business that they have was during open enrollment and they were sanctioned. They couldn't sell new business at that time. That was huge. That was such a crushing blow to them for that year. And similar in cannabis, if you know you've got uh, compliance issues, you can be shut down, you can be heavily fined. I mean, there's things that can happen that can really sink, sink your business. Well, we live in a different world of compliance when it comes to cannabis, cannabis by virtue of it still being illegal at the federal level. And what that means for any type of consultant is if you have a client that is not compliant and refuses to come into compliance, it's not just a question of whether or not that's, you know, the business impact on your client. It's also a question for you as a consultant as whether as to whether or not you want to stay around. Because at the end of the day, um, if anybody's going to have the finger pointed at them, it's probably going to be a consultant or probably going to be the attorney, compliance officer, whoever. So you don't want to be staying on a sinking ship with a, a federally illegal business I, is my my uh, soapbox, I am typically on with these types of conversations. I would 100% agree, Ryan. You don't want to be complicit in just turning a blind eye if you've got a client that is not being compliant. Even if in your contract, in your consulting contract, there is a stipulation that you will not be held liable because that's one of the things that I make sure my in my contract, there's a mutual, mutually, you know, uh, accountability in terms of if the company has done something wrong, the consultant cannot be held liable. Equally, if the consultant does something wrong, the company isn't liable. There are still ways around the contract. You, you do not want to be complicit and look, look the other way. If they're not being compliant, either you need to get them compliant. If they're not willing to get compliant, chances are it's, it's not the right cult, um, the right client fit for you. Yeah. And along those same lines, you know, first of all, there's a difference between disagreeing with a client over the interpretation of a regulation and blatantly illegal activity. Uh, the latter you need to walk. And I think it's really important for consultants, attorneys, whoever, you know, that's working with a cannabis company to not only document the time that they're spending working for a client, but also be very clear in the conversations that you've had with clients so that if down the road, 
um, something happens related to a disagreement that you had with a client that you have documentation that shows that you had taken X, Y, Z position and made it very clear that you didn't, you know, agree with the course of action um, that the client was taking. And, you know, I don't want anybody to interpret this as, as if like you're uh, setting your client up or something like that. I, I'm very upfront with my clients yeah. that I'm keeping record of everything we do just so that it's very clear where we all stand in all of this. And I think that's really important, especially with what you're doing, because like I said, it it's really mixing in some semblance of compliance mixed with business consulting. And that has with it, you know, the potential. The thing I always say to clients and just generally is like, I'm not your babysitter. I'm not watching what you're doing every day. I obviously will never advise or assist you in breaking the law. But at the end of the day, I I can't watch your every move. So it's really important that you're documenting what you're doing for clients, you know, substantively, in addition to the time that you're spending on those tasks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, um, like you said, the transparency with your client about documenting, I oftentimes will CC them and say, based on our conversation, here's here's what I understood from it. Um, and so there is no confusion about where I stand, my understanding. If I misunderstood something, like maybe I thought they were unwilling to move forward with getting in compliance, at least that we can have that conversation. But it is so important. And I, unfortunately, it, it gets to that point sometimes where you have to CYA. But um, as an entrepreneur, as a solopreneur, I, I need to do that. Yeah, I, I haven't had a single client actually that's been offended by that because it's usually a good segue into the, like how they ought to be handling like supply chain relationships as well. Like so we've seen what handshake deals has has done to uh, the industry. I mean, we have the state of California suggesting that they're going to, you know, step in legislatively and make people pay their bills. Like we've we've seen, you know, what can happen um, when deals aren't documented properly and that you don't have the proper terms on paper to enforce a contract. And obviously there's more to the story. And if, if someone's just not going to pay a bill, they're not going to pay a bill. But the point being, and really, I, I think most clients have been extremely receptive because it really, it's something that they themselves should be implementing in one context or another. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, is it New York that was even saying that they may be going after landlords that are leasing to uh, illicit dispensaries and retail shops now? And that that's a bit controversial as well. Yeah, no, I did. I saw that. And, uh, you know, and I've represented some landlords over the years, and I there seems to be this misconception that they're somehow shielded. And admittedly, it, it, in terms of like asset forfeiture, which I'm actually doing a trial in November, at least as of today, it's set for trial. Um, it's very, it's difficult to actually seize property. There's a different, um, set of rules that you have to live by, but you know, it's suffice to say that if you're a landlord, you, you need to be a little careful with that. And it, it really speaks to it's, it's brings up a conversation of due diligence. You know, so often I find that operators just aren't doing due diligence into the people they want to do business with. And it's not, you know, the, the example I always give is like a burner distro. If I'm a cultivator and I sell to a distributor in California who then sells it out the back door illegally, 
I don't want to be in a position to say, oh, well, you know, that was a decision they made. What they do with it is what they do with it. Because if there's any evidence whatsoever that you knew or should have known that that weed was going out the back door, you're going to have problems. So I just, you really, it just, and it brings it back to the, the landlord conversation. I would be very diligent about looking into any potential tenant to make sure they're doing everything above board, because similarly, it's not enough to stick your head in the sand and say, oh, I didn't know what they were doing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So more. that's probably a good place to stop, Charlene. We, I guess we could talk a little bit about podcasting stuff. Maybe we'll save that for a different episode. We didn't, didn't get to that. I was telling Charlene about that she would laugh if she saw my uh, <laughs> my setup here in the uh, the kitchen that I have going on. But maybe we'll we'll talk about that once you get your podcast going or your content yes. that we talked about, right? Absolutely. And I, I need to I need to upgrade. I need to get an official um, a speaker like you've got a microphone. I see a lot of it now with the podcast. They've got really cool setups and they're they're very fairly portable, right? Yeah, no, this one just plugs right into the computer, but I got to say, I had uh, one of the virtual backgrounds for a while, which I kept it because it was like so over the top. It was like a cafe and it was so clearly fake, which I, I bring that up to make the point that you got the background down. Your background is fancy. Well, I, so my, my, I'm in my office and my desk is uh, normally I face the other way, but the other way is just a blank wall. And this is what I look at. I'm like, well, I want to look at nice stuff. So I switched my, my chair around. Um, but I was going to say that, um, the virtual backgrounds I've tried them and the minute you move in, I'm so animated sometimes when I talk that it kind of goes in and out, like your head, half your head showing half it's not and like, you know, I either just need to have a nice visual background or blur everything out so they can just not see just a blank wall. Um, so yeah, this is, this is my other, this is the other side of my office. I think your setup's perfect. I I was saying to Charlene yesterday on the phone, like the mistake I've made in the past is I've like spent time like reading books. And I, I think, you know, you have to do a little research in terms of equipment and stuff. But I think in terms of content, you got to just do it, you know? I, and I think your setup, again, your background puts mine to shame. And I think the video and, and audio is perfect. I think it's just, it's really a substance over form, I guess, is what I would say, yeah. you know? And I think for me, like I was telling you earlier, I, I know very much like the the my experience and my skill set is transitionable. It's connecting it to the cannabis community, making it relevant to them. Because when I tell them what I do, it's like, uh, yeah, no, we don't need that. That doesn't that well, that's not needed in cannabis, so we don't have that. But in actuality, actually, you do. Or you know, even some of the things we didn't talk about today. One of the other things I'm very big on is operational and organizational design. You know, startup companies that I work with right now really bring me in because they want to start with the right organizational and operational structures so that they can scale as they grow. And if they're doing everything kind of haphazardly or super manual, or it's not well documented or defined as they grow, they're not going to be able to scale. You can only do manual for so long or you can, you can only do things in an inefficient way for so long. As you start to grow, you really need to look at you know, operational efficiencies, process improvements. And if you've built the structure from the get-go to support that, 
it'll allow for you to scale as you grow. And that's really, I think, where a lot of my clients bring me in um, is we know, um, you know, we're, we know that eventually we want to grow and we want to do it the right way. We don't want to go through that painful having to pause on anything and restructure. And that goes everything from defining roles and responsibilities, having clear understanding of who does what, all the way through um, talking about, like I said, SOPs and processes and procedures and introducing um, tools and technology. You know, how are you managing projects or how are you managing communications, Slack, Monday, whatever that is, introducing that and helping them become more efficient um, and more streamlined as they grow so that they can focus on the growth. You know, they can focus on what other, you know, markets do I want to attract? What other products do I want to bring to market? Those things can be their focus if they've got the right organizational and operational structures in place to be able to support the growth. It seems like a comfort thing. Like if I'm an entrepreneur, I have my attorney told me I should form an LLC rather than a corporation. And therefore I'm good to go. And it's almost when you push people on the things that you're talking about, it takes them out of that comfort zone. And this may be a bizarre analogy, but what it makes me think about is like, say something terrible happens and a murder occurs. We want to believe that that person is evil because it makes us feel comforted in knowing why it happened. We don't want to acknowledge like mental health problems and all that kind of stuff because we get comfort in the fact that that person's evil and it means that it's not going to happen again. It almost reminds me of that. Like if I interject the, the people skills and just the integration skills that you're talking about, it's, it's pushing me on my beliefs that, Oh, I formed an entity. I picked the entity. We're good to go. But there's just more to the story, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, one of the biggest challenges is when you don't know like the roles and responsibilities in the company you don't know who to go to for decisions. You don't know who to involve um, in certain business meetings. And that's when there starts to be a lot of confusion and chaos. And that's when you start to see disharmony in the company. And once there's that disharmony and it starts to breed as part of their corporate culture or the workplace culture, it's really difficult to attract high, high talent there, top talent there because there, there is a little bit of chaos and there is a little bit of, um, like I said, disharmony. And so being able to create uh, a harmonious, high-functioning work environment is going to bring the top talent that you need. While I didn't intend on bringing up murder during this podcast and take it to a dark place, I, I think the theme for me in all of this is that we kind of have to step it up and kind of expand our thinking a little bit past um, what we think about what it, in terms of operating a business, there's a lot of talk about having SOPs, but like, what does that really look like? Um, again, this stuff is not an academic exercise. Like you have to have boots on the ground experience, I think, to speak intelligently to it like you do, Charlene. So I really appreciate the time. Um, I won't hold you up much longer. Where can people find you though, before we go? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn at Charlene Estrada. Um, you can find me, um, my website, elevatebeyondconsulting.com or Charlene at elevatebeyondconsulting.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. You have a good one. You too.